1: All right, we're here today with Brian Baker. Brian is a leading technology product designer. Uh, his designs are found all over the world in enterprise software, e-commerce, apps, connected devices, and many other places. He's the recipient of the coveted Best of CES and Red Dot awards and he has been recognized by Forbes, Yahoo, and Wired magazine for his work in digital. So that's a bit of an overview. Brian, would you like to give us sort of a deep background on yourself? What brings you to design usability in these related fields?
2: So on the design piece, um, I was just driving a cab in San Francisco in the early uh, 90s. And this thing called the Internet happened, World Wide Web. And so I started started putting up websites. That's pretty much how it started. I got into consumer technology in, I guess, 2000, the year 2000. So six years after I've been building websites. And now we do about 40% consumer tech and auto. And about 60% digital. Well that's it. I, I have no, no training whatsoever, but you didn't need any. If you were, If you were placed correctly in downtown San Francisco in 90, 1994 and 95, you could get a job. I mean, there was money you know falling off the building, so it was fantastic. Uh, I did take classes in uh, usability from Nielsen Norman Group down south of San Francisco and then we ended up kind of writing the book on how to design for large-scale web, web applications. Um, and surprisingly or not surprisingly, we were in the room when we, uh, my company was in the room when we brought this user experience design philosophy to digital, uh, calling so calling it UX to digital, um, because UX originally was both digital and hardware, uh, and we worked very hard to get user experience design into the nomenclature. It took us about seven years to get it to New York, but after it got to New York from San Francisco in 2007, it really took hold, and now there are you know, hundreds of universities and certificate programs that offer UX degrees.
1: Wow, so you guys were responsible for coining that term and getting it into the pop- popular imagination?
2: Don't now, Don Norman was responsible for coining the term, and he was he was the lead designer at Apple Computer. Uh, he was there right up until I think Steve Jobs' return, and he wrote the seminal work in user experience design called "The Design of Everyday Things." Oh, yeah, okay. right. So he's still around, uh, and part of the Nielsen Norman Group, obviously, in uh, down south Palo Alto, I think, and. Um, he's the lead, you know, he's kind of the grandfather of discipline. No, we just brought it to digital. Um, and Jesse James Garrett, who was a competitor of mine in San Francisco from Adaptive Path, he wrote the very first book, and it was called User Experience Design for Digital. And that was, I think, in the late uh, 2002. And so I didn't do any heavy lifting there at all. We just changed our letterhead to say, hey, UI and web software to user experience design. That's what that's what we did.
1: So that's that's an awful big transition. Could you talk a little bit more about how you went from cabbie to uh, head of the world of UX?
2: So the yeah, the cab driver thing, I was trying to write a write a book, and I had a foreword to write a book um, for being a rookie police officer in San Francisco, and of course I never did that because the World Wide Web was launched. Um, but I, I, I literally just put up the one of the first 10,000 websites trying to sell my writing. And nobody called to buy the writing. I'm not a very good writer, as it turns out. A lot of people <laughs> called and said, hey, can you help us put up one of those website things? That, that looks pretty cool. So that's what I ended up doing.
1: Wow. So did you... Did you read Don Norman's book and think about ways to apply that to digital? Was it sort of a natural and obvious transition? Because I know some of those early websites were pretty god-awful, and they've, they've gotten better over time. So people like you are, are responsible for that, and I'm sort of interested in how that that transition occurs. Does it fade into view over time? You realize that a website can be aesthetic, it can be well-designed, or you know, did you read this book and say, we need to do this with digital right now? There's a whole frontier to explore.
2: So. I think the question is how do you get from a real, from really bad you know websites to good websites, and a lot of it was the constraints of technology. So we did HTML one was very constrained, uh, and the users were new, and so the users that were on the World Wide Web were really not focused on uh, usability. We didn't have we didn't even sell the first products online until I think 1997 or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, you know, and that, that was people just porting over their stores from AOL uh, at that point. The and the, there's also something too when you have a brand new medium, it's a very different uh, animal. It has a different growth curve, right? So there's this really long growth curve uh, that's that's kind of inversely proportional to the numbers of u- number of users you have. So we didn't have a really good um, templatized. Uh, website creation software until really Dreamweaver in the early 2000s and then um, the democratization of that, which was kind of, uh, uh, what is the name of the W, the big, you know, I want to say WeWork all the time, um, WordPress. There you go. So WordPress and Joomla and all those kind of things, those are all, those are all great they they democratize the internet. So the internet has actually grown from 2011 to today. In the last nine years, it's doubled in size just because of the democratization of that technology. Most websites are still very poorly designed and most websites do not actually follow a user experience design protocol, Um, which is why I'm still in business, I think. Uh, So people call me to get the real stuff done. They don't call me to put up a pretty website. You know what I mean? Um, so just a couple months ago, right before, uh, you know, the, the nation shut down here, we put up the first, we made the first trading platform for crypto and fiat currencies around the world. Which one was that one? You know, it, what's that?
1: Which one was that one?
2: Well, I'm not allowed to say, but oh, it was okay. for a big federally insured bank. So it, it's a... Um, but it's internal software, it's not external software.
1: Oh, I see. I, I used to work at a crypto asset startup and so I, I'm familiar with a lot of those trading platforms and I was wondering which one you built.
2: Yeah, so we made it on the, um, we made it graphical, uh, which was very important to these people because they didn't want to hire just people from Goldman Sachs who were traders to come in and trade and that's the platform they were using previously was a Bloomberg platform. That wasn't real efficient for newbies it took them several months to kind of even just learn the platform and so we made it very graphical and um but we did that by going in and watch the traders trade that's the way you do that you don't you don't guess at how they trade you don't stand around a whiteboard and think you're as smart as the traders you have to go, go and watch them trade and that's that's the real kicker and so we took Several days of notes, just watching five or six traders work throughout the day, um, without speaking to them. No questions. No interviews. Nothing like that. Those things came later, um, and that strict behavioral study is what made that software so successful. Uh, they just launched about well, it was six months ago. The launch, so we we were there nine months ago, I guess.
1: Okay, so I have several follow-ups to that, but I first want to zoom out a little bit and contextualize the discussion a bit. So in doing research for this episode, I kept coming back to the stories told about the early rivalry between Apple and Microsoft, and how one of the things which distinguished Apple was Steve Jobs' conviction that computers could be both aesthetically well-designed and functionally well-designed. And I suspect there's a deep connection between these two things, so using this for context, could you talk a little bit about how you conceptualize design and some of the principles of good and bad design? Do you think it's more like learning? math or more more like learning sculpture just riff on that a little bit
2: so the design design to me is there's some innate design that that each human being has I believe so we all see beauty in a similar fashion although that's judged a little bit by our our different cultures Uh, we we enjoy uh, mimicking things from nature that's something that's that's fairly innate it's comfortable for us to see and and then there's just, you know, and you can mimic nature on a website or in a, in a, if you're making something, um, you know, a, a, a countertop appliance for the kitchen, it doesn't really matter. Mimicking nature is is often a, a winning proposition. The there, It's unfortunate that design comes and it gets spoken of and it shouldn't be uh, form follows function or function follows form, it should be both. So the aesthetic is what we all land on. The aesthetic is what the end user, whether it's that kitchen appliance or a piece of software really sees, right? And that aesthetic is super important, uh, but you have to have the functionality functionality along with it. So Steve Jobs remade the software that he saw at Xerox PARC and Bill Gates did the same thing, but then took his operating system from IBM and That was a very, and I don't know that Steve Jobs was very prescient at that time in saying, wait a second, got to make something beautiful as well as something functional. He was just trying to get something out the door in 1979. So uh, he started really concentrating on the experience of computing in 1984 when he introduced the Mac. And that was the, that was where the, that was like the first box computer, you know. Um, I think that was 84 85. And that computer started making uh, some money, not as much money as the, you know, and that's when also Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak parted ways. They were in charge of different um, Mac projects. Uh, But that's when Apple really started spending a great deal of time on their design, um, their design book and their protocols for how to design things. And they started spending a great deal of money on studying the human animal. And I think that's what really separated Apple from Microsoft. So yeah, both so went to see. Xerox Park in a month or within a month of each other, and one of them decided to use an operating system that had already been established, which was basically set up for for coders and tech people. And Steve Jobs built his own on top of uh, on top of the simple UI that he saw, or the graphical user interface, rather that he saw at Xerox.
0: So Brian, when I in the middle of the 1980s, I was working at IBM and uh, working as a human factors engineer. Um, so w- what we started on was mostly the manufacturing lines, and then we were doing some some software here and there, but not too much. But uh, I got asked quite a few times because IBM came out with the personal computer. Um, I actually got my first personal computer in 1984, and. Um, and Apple was um, kind of renowned for being so much easier to use than the IBM computer, and I I was asked to answer that question quite a bit as to why uh, why it was that uh, Apple computers were so much easier to use than IBM, because uh, you you unbox your IBM computer and you and you have like six to eight inches of books that you that. Come out of the box with it, and that's that's you had all those manuals you had to read through to figure out how to how to use the damn thing, and uh, it it was quite staggering. So, one one of the uh, the angles that I was using at the time was I was saying that, well, it's uh, it's uh, it's very easy for a company that doesn't know a lot about computing to um, uh, to appeal to first time users, and Apple was good at that, and I said that IBM knew a lot about uh, computers and they didn't have a good, uh, an easy time of talking down to first time users, uh, which wasn't a good selling point at all. But that was that was the approach I was using.
2: <laughs> well, and I think that, you know, it was also something that was built on top of the framework from IBM and that caused a lot of troubles for Microsoft. They were not, they were never focused on selling to the end user as much as they were focused on running the servers behind the end user. And that's, that's where they ended up. They still, you know, I mean, HP and Microsoft are behemoths because they still run a lot of those servers, you know, um, and yeah. that's something that's really a big deal for both of those companies. And Apple Apple tried to get in that business several times, but always sort of failed because until they adopted OS 10, um, because their servers just weren't of the same kind of bulletproof uh, technology that, that Microsoft and IBM had. Um, and so I think that... The, and Human Factors is a real big deal, I mean Human Factors today is still a really big deal. Uh, you know, I've, I've studied that for for more than 20 years at this point and I don't, I no longer really differentiate the usability between Human Factors and usability of the actual design at the end of a project because they're about the same. Right. You force somebody into a tall stool and you're at the, uh, you know, and you're out on an assembly line in China. They need to be able to reach their station, um, and that's that's human factors, right? But that has to be considered in how you're putting the line together, along with the software that runs the line. So, yeah, you know, I it's, it's I read
0: Yeah, I read the whole book on uh, Steve the Steve Jobs auto uh, biography there that was written by Walter Isaacson, and, and there was there didn't seem to be any. Uh, rhyme or reason to his life and why it made sense and why he accomplished things because he was uh, he's a part-time nut job and part-time um, rude and abusive boss and manager but then it all started coming together at the end when he was uh, kind of running Apple computers from the design center and then it all started making sense because he would go in, in to work every day and he'd sit around and playing with the gadgets that they were they were working on and then he would call the different teams in to say hey uh, why did you create this and can we fix that And, and, uh, and that's when they started coming out with some really really good products
2: well, and that was, it was interesting, I think, because Isaacson really did a horrible job. I can't recommend that book, and if he wants to call me and talk about that, we can. <laughs> um,
1: we'll, we'll have him on. You guys can yeah. talk about it. <laughs>
2: um, and, and, and because he didn't really cover the design aspect. So if we think about how big design is in the world, design accounts for a fair percentage of the gross domestic product for every nation. So every product we have, we use is somehow designed, Right if you had to have a set of sheets that you're using, somebody had to design those sets and they spent a long time doing it. They spent a lot of time thinking about it. There's material design in sheets, there's a pattern, there's obviously you know sizing issues, fit issues, comfort issues, all that kind of stuff. And that's just sheets, right? I mean, you get into computers and you're going nuts with all the different touch points and all the different things people can do with computers. Um, Steve Jobs was smart enough to hire when he started making a little money out of the garage he and, Steve, and the other Steve Wozniak. Um, they did uh, get in touch with a, a German gentleman who ran a design company called Frog Design. And he he tried to get Steve Jobs into the human-centered design process, and Steve just outright refused. So uh, Frog Design ended up making most of the boxes that you see from 1980 to about 1994 or 95 i think from apple computer um and i was at their facility very often down south uh they would often hire my firm to help them with stuff and that story was very well known you know about steve jobs not quite getting it uh and then uh when he when he left apple and he was kind of forced out and he had a couple hundred million dollars in his pocket He started two companies one was pixar and the other one was um uh next which was ended up up to be the kernel and the operating system for the new mac and os10 and he watched he he was very hands-off at pixar and he watched these guys just spend all of this time on design and they spent a lot of time looking at at past animation and what audiences really really um resonated with and I think that that experience brought him back to Apple in a fully human-centered design way. And so you don't really see at Apple a lot of psychologists or anthropologists or ethnographers before Steve came back for the second time. But when he came back for the second time, they were all over the place. And you know there, there are a lot of famous um, stories just about the iPhone. The iPhone was pretty much done in 2006, and it didn't get released until 18 months later, 2005. But they were testing it with people all over the world, you know, and they wanted to make sure that a full screen phone could, touch phone could actually sell. Um, You know, did they need the home button kind of a thing? All of those things were very, very important, and they did that by doing user research, not just by guessing inside of their inside of the design studio. So a lot of people have this false narrative that Steve Jobs was just a prescient, you know, uh, design genius. I think he was definitely a marketing genius. Um, but his design genius, I think, came from his constant study of human nature and human behavior.
0: So as we're moving through this new era of the coronavirus, as we're, um, we're all being forced to do something different now, we're working from our homes, we can't go around hang out with people, we can't go to meetings, it just seems like um, the, the idea of uh, ergonomics, the user, user-centered design, all that just kind of goes out the window. And all the uh, kind of strategies we were using last year, just uh, they, they don't seem to apply much anymore, uh, or they've, they've kind of taken a second seat to uh, kind of more of a survival mode. Um, can, can you talk about how this has affected you and in, in your work uh, moving into this new era,
2: sure. So you know, we have we're definitely more dependent on technology now. I have uh, there are a lot of uh, apps that are designed to take user pulse uh, during their use of a product, and we've tried about four of them at this point. Uh, and it should be said, we're in we're in early June of, of twenty twenty. Um, those those have a pretty good efficacy rate. They're they're. You know, I, I feel like we're getting about fifty or sixty percent of what we'd get if we were in the room with people. Uh, and when we combine those things in the home or in the office place, we're doing products for office or home uh, with video, then we can really get a pretty good sample. Um, unfortunately, it's very hard to read video unless you're a trained ethnographer. So. It's very hard to see constant movement and um, repetitive tasks and how people are setting their, their you know, their, how they're how they're using a product, whether it's a blender or whether it's a piece of software. Um, but if you can find the trained ethnographers who are good at studying video, we're, we're pretty close to a 90% with video plus the apps. The reason that I don't think the apps, you know, they lose 40 or 50% of efficacy in discovering human behavior is because it is a, a very conscious thing. So if someone has a real difficult time finding, not a real difficult time, let's just say you go to Bananarepublic.com and you want to buy a, a pair of trousers and you're a, you're a man and they have three different... Uh, cuts of their trousers and you have to figure out which cut is best for you because they're very different you know you got the slim cut which isn't going to fit me ever and then you've got the medium and the, the wide body cut if you will and they, they all have funny names to them so it's the Dalton and the I, I don't know what they're all called but in any case that can be a very frustrating experience that you're not going to have a real hard time capturing by an app because if it takes three minutes to do that on banana you're going to be frustrated for two out of the three minutes trying to figure that out, but you're not going to be frustrated enough to then be, to then say you were just frustrated unless the app is there with you and recording you while you're doing it. Um, most people don't remember what they had for breakfast, much less, uh, when they got a little annoyed at a a digital property or a kitchen appliance or a car or something like that. Right? So, so we have this, uh, so you really want to be there. Now the video does give us, like I said, eighty to ninety percent. Uh, the apps are at fifty percent, and combining both of those, uh, I'm pretty confident that we can still get a ninety percent uh, efficacy rate on studying behavior. But it is one of those things that I hope comes back because being in the room with people is a whole different experience. So,
0: we're, so we're with all great links for that, with all the changes that are going on we we've had to alter our lifestyles considerably and um it's it's i think it's an interesting question at this point in time what are these what of these changes are going to be permanent which ones are just temporary and um and kind of what what are your thoughts on this whole transition
2: well i think that we're i think the digitization of you know a lot of a lot of worker tasks has just come upon us like a tidal wave, right? Um, It's really amazing to watch some of our clients who were very ready for that and some of our clients who were not very ready for that and the differences in how they're working. I think that because um, we've been in the lockdown not for one month, but for two and a half, basically, at this point, uh, and just now starting to come back nationwide, that gave us time to get over the novelty effect of, of being, you know, and the, the experimentation effect um, of what, what we're using and so forth. So just before this call, uh, you know, we we realized that Zoom wasn't going to work very well, so we decided to use a different platform. And that caused some consternation uh, to you, Trent, right? You were like, wait a second, I don't have the software for that. I was
1: absolutely being, furious.
2: Absolutely <laughs> furious. And, but that kind of stuff is, 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 you know, you know what you know, right? This platform is almost exactly, we're on WebEx. So this platform is almost exactly the same as Zoom. It has a couple extra features Zoom didn't have just because I have professional account with this uh, company. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we're, uh, you know, we could, we could be on the Zoom call and be just as comfortable. So it is, it's one of those things where the comfort of where we were three months ago is starting to fade from our view. And... We aren't going to realize how important those collaborative meetings are with our teams in person until they've been gone for a little while. Um, You know, I I work in a a fairly large, one of the larger buildings in downtown Boulder and I think they've got 14 or 16 tenants, uh, law firms and all that kind of stuff and the rents are are pretty enormous, but we're talking about a a lot of A-class office space and they've lost five or six major tenants who are just never coming back to work. I mean, the, and they were law firms and uh, one digital firm and uh, 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 a wealth management company. Um, that's really interesting to me. They're, they're saying we're not gonna pay this $40,000 a month in rent for our 75 people because we're gonna move on and we're gonna go virtual. We're gonna spend that money uh, maybe once a quarter going to a retreat somewhere you know, and, and that kind of thing. And it's very interesting to see the economic uh, fallout of this is going to be pretty dramatic, I think. But we won't really know what we're missing uh, with all the innovations that have taken place here over the last 10 weeks until they're gone for a little while. Um, and that's, that's something that I'm seeing. So I'm, th- I'm very hopeful that a lot of this stuff does stay, like, you know, the, just the video stuff and the, the getting work done from home and being okay with that uh productivity has gone very well uh, for for most of the companies i've spoken with and surprisingly so um i've been saying because i've been watching people in offices for software purposes for over 20 years at this point and i always say yeah if you're if you're in the office for 10 hours you're getting about four and a half or five hours of work out of those people and i think that people realized that when they were stuck at home after a couple weeks and they realize they can get a full day's work done with four hours in front of the computer, uh, which is which is great. Um, there's just too much other stuff to play with. I don't know. It's a it's it's interesting to watch the productivity not sync with some of these companies, uh, where I really I really wasn't sure whether it would or not. Did that answer your question, Tom, on where we are currently?
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, one one thing I've noticed is that. Um, I've been driving around getting takeout food from different restaurants, and there's a big, big difference between um, restaurants that are embracing this change uh, in a lackluster fashion, and those who have, who have really dove in and said, "Yeah, let's just go with this. Let's do everything we can to make to support this this new lifestyle." And so, most restaurants um, you go to, you get some sort of a bag with. With all the food kind of wrapped in freezer paper or something, uh, and then you have ones like uh, Olive Garden that have actually spent an enormous amount of time redesigning all their packaging and everything, and everything is meticulously placed in each um, each compartment, and uh, it's it's really a totally different experience. Um, there there's just some that are far better, and then you have like like Texas Roadhouse is one that. Um, they, they've managed to figure out how to attract huge crowds even though the restaurant itself wasn't open and they've got uh, people outside directing traffic in the parking lot and, and everything and so you get uh, sent to a specific parking space for you to wait for your food to come out and, and so there's, there's a, a radical difference in the way people are embracing all these changes. Yeah, and
2: I think some of that is due to the you know kind of the the signaling to your customers about how much you care and uh or how much you're signaling to your customers you you're you don't take this as seriously as some other folks do because it's not necessary to take it seriously i'm not I, i'm not of an opinion either way is more correct uh and i think that the people that had community are more likely those restaurateurs. I'm, I'm talking about restaurant tours those people that had community are seeing people come back quite a bit quicker uh so they already had a community that really missed that restaurant you know what i mean and they they came back they came back right away uh also those restaurants that had put some time and energy into outdoor spaces you know we're in the spring and it's nice and they can get some heat lamps and and still serve and do really well we've had a couple restaurants in um, boulder that have gotten in trouble for opening or being too much open or not seating kind of a thing Correctly as to the state's uh, requisite, and it's interesting to see them just go right back to doing it because they're like, "Right, well, our community, our community is more important than the $200 fine kind of a thing." Um, people want to talk to each other and they want to they want to be next to each other. So I think that that you know once the reality of what COVID has done becomes more clear, we're either going to see a tightening and everybody kind of going to that level of the of the the special styrofoam made by olive garden or we're going to go to yeah we're back to not wearing gloves at mass we're preparing food uh i'm hoping it'll be a happy medium but uh i have no idea where it's going to go because people do want to gather um you know here in boulder we have pearl street and they shut off two two blocks of pro street where most of the restaurants are and it's packed. People are out or, you know, they're, they're eating. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of cool.
0: I've, I've always had trouble eating with a
1: mask on. <laughs> we need to get a usability expert to figure that out for us.
2: <laughs> yeah. The, the mask thing is such a, it's, it's kind of a nightmare. I am, I'm wearing um, those buffs, you know, from my, from my fly fishing stuff. So just the things that you wear for UV protection when you're on a river and that has worked really well for me. It's not protecting me from anything or anybody from me, not really. I just don't. I stay away from from folks. But um, the thinner the better, because I find the breathing to be difficult. Uh, and I do love it when people keep their masks on in their cars, because that's really funny to me. Uh, but I, it's also. I, I just think some of us look so comical with the masks, um, and you know, bank robbers and. I don't know. It just brings back all of these things. Uh, you know, there's a lot more trust in a in a banking transaction right now. I purposely went into my bank uh, with a bandana and a baseball cap on the first week the, the masks were uh, were made man were mandatory, <laughs> and that was so much fun just to kind of see everybody in the bank and wow, who's got a gun underneath there too? Because everybody <laughs> looked like a criminal. Um, it was it was actually interesting. Yeah, it was the just
0: it was, was just crazy. a year ago or so when. Or two years ago, when the French made the ruling that uh, people from the Middle East couldn't wear burkas over their face, um, going through security, and uh, and it seems like what a transition we've gone through since then.
2: Yeah, and I I work with a with a, an AI company that uh, that does facial recognition, and their facial recognition. It's not quite ready for prime time, but they have been in the news lately because they have. Uh, they can pretty much tell who you are by your, uh, by the features of your eyes alone, uh, and that's something that. Uh, so with a mask on, they can still tell you tell who you are, and that is rolling out in several different platforms here. I know the casinos are 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 looking at it, uh, the police, in several places, and um, I don't know if London is going to. These guys actually work uh, with CCTV in London, and I don't know when it's gonna roll out there, but there is that that issue of we, we've made a 180 here where you can't wear a mask. I think France also made that rule, you can't wear a mask as a protester. Um, and so that, that's that gone 180 degrees with uh, with the 19, So, which is my new term for COVID-19. Uh, I've been using that with a straight face all last week. And I, I actually heard it spoken back to me today so that i want credit for the 19
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah so so it's I I still keep going back to which of these changes around us are permanent which ones are only temporary Um, it looks to me like um, people who are living in high rise buildings and had to resort to only uh one person or one couple at a time going up and down elevators um that that suddenly they get frustrated with those type of living situations uh, being in close proximity to other people which has been kind of a growing trend and like in singapore they were building houses that are condos that were only like 200 150 250 square feet um, like suddenly that becomes bad and nobody wants those anymore, and so they're moving out someplace else. Um, is is are those permanent shifts, or do we see the pendulum swing back the other way?
2: Well, I know you've asked it three times, and I apologize for that. I, I it because my answer is still the same. We just don't know. I mean, there's no. It's kind of like guessing whether the handshake will come back or not, uh, which is kind of the you know one of the tropes that's used from uh, uh, ethnographers, like, do you think the handshake was so endemic or so, so used by, by worldwide culture that we're going to go back to that? Um, and I just don't know. I mean, you know, Tom, there were, I was in Hong Kong immediately after SARS and nobody was moving out of high rises. I mean, they were all, you know, they, they wore gloves. They had, they had, um, uh, you know, sanitizer at the bottom of in the elevator and on the bottom in each lobby and all that kind of stuff um they had big they they made all the buttons red uh for the elevator as warning you know we're gonna warn you that this might have a virus on it uh so the people didn't end up leaving the downtown area but that again is a is a very limited population who's already pretty stuck in a in a high-rise culture because hong kong is not uh their open space is spoken for so they're not they don't have any place to go but up uh, and so, I'm not sure if we will actually see people move out of the cities or not. I think we had already seen quite a bit of flight of middle-income people out of cities, and I think that will definitely continue, uh, unless rents kind of come down in those major urban centers, which I, I don't see that happening. So um, that it'll be really interesting to watch. I think the economic fallout here, whether it's really dramatic or only partially dramatic, is going to really dictate how that goes. And so I'm sorry I can't give you an answer about how we're but I, I just don't know either. and But everybody I talk to doesn't really know. We're just kind of looking at the tea leaves and guessing. Um, there are things that are pointing to your original statement, which is we're not going to work as much anymore. We're going to be spending time at home, working from home, and being just as productive. And I think that's the only thing we can really say right now. Uh, that's going to be a
0: permanent change. Yeah, one of my last column that I wrote was on the concept of the drivable office. That if we don't have to go into work, then we could actually be mobile, and so we could just buy an RV, buy a fifth wheel trailer or motor coach or camper, build an office in there, and then just drive around the country, and um, and just be uh, a nomad. Uh, and. That we're, we're seeing actual kind of record sales of of RVs and and those type of trailers happening right now um, but nobody knows if that's going to be sustainable or not and um, and uh, there, there's going to be a lot of novices trying it out just to see if they like it and uh, m- my guess is some will and some won't so uh, it's a it's a radical change to the way they live
2: yeah and I think that you know, uh, we have got, you know, with 4G, we can get decent internet in a, in a tour bus or an RV, uh, almost anywhere we go. And, you know, this has been my thing even before Corona. I was, I, or the 19, rather. I was, um, <laughs> I really dislike flying. It's it's not so much the airplane itself. It's the before and after the airplane. So yeah. it's the, it, airports have gotten so horribly user unfriendly that they're just a nightmare um, and you know if I'm going to Chicago say that's a one-hour flight except it's not a one-hour flight it's a six-hour endeavor and I can get there in 10 hours overnight 12 hours overnight by car so why don't I just do that instead um, and so I was I was kind of looking into this for the, for the past couple of years and I think certainly now I, I did actually look uh, Friday today is Monday on the tour bus rentals and tour buses Tour bus companies are, are dirt cheap right now, so you can... And they'll they'll refer a driver, so you can get the tour bus and the driver for, you know, less money than it is to fly cross-country a couple times. So that's actually great. <laughs> um, and I don't know, if I had a project that had me running around the country, I'm sure that I'd put my team on a bus and, and do that instead of, at least now, do that instead of the airplanes. So, yeah, I, and I, I don't know if that'll last either. Um, um, Every once in a while I go and look at Etsy for for bespoke products, and a lot of those people seem to be on the road. i bought from three people in 2019, 2020 here, and they're all on the road. They're living out of a van or a big sprinter van or something, and they've got a dog and a wife or husband, and they're just kind of cruising around, staying in state parks and living the dream, you know? And so I think that's kind of cool, but I I I haven't seen uh, real professionals outside of uh, John Madden do it uh, and and be able to maintain it for a long time. Wasn't he the one who always took the buses?
0: He was, yeah, yeah. He always took the buses because he had this flying phobia.
2: Yeah, Uh, I have an airport phobia. If I could get on a plane, you know, in if I could just if I could just make enough money to fly private all the time, I would definitely visit airports. I don't seem to be at that level
0: just yet. Yeah, um, I haven't flown since since all this, but I will next Monday. And um, yeah, I hear that the airports are a, a radically different experience right now. That there's a virtual ghost town when you get there and uh, not many people on planes. And, um, and so going through security, there, the the airlines are trying to create this touchless experience from the curb to the gate Um, so that that seems radically different because in uh, the Denver Airport as an example they crowd everybody into these trains that are going out to the concourses and there's there's no way to social distance on those trains there's just absolutely none Uh, so you just get uh, kind of cattle prodded into them and then you go with it um, I, I'm, I'm thinking that that all go, undergoes some radical changes here over the coming years but again we're trying to put our finger on what those changes are and, and how long will it be before we actually get to the live meeting world again um, where, where it's common to have events where you have a thousand people in a room and um, enjoying an event like they did before. Uh, we're We're still waiting to hear how long before that happens. I know CES is is planning on having their regular event in January. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how many people come to that.
2: Yeah, I think that they might they might come down to a much more comfortable level and that is something for people with you know CES floor phobia like I have or a uh, airport phobia. Um, it's okay if there's less people there, I think. Um, yeah. I, the idea though, I think that I think a lot will depend. So we've just had two and a half months of, of changed human behavior uh, by writ, right? I mean this is, this, is a, this is something that we weren't expecting. It's totally out of the blue, and we all were forced to make really, really fast changes. And if this comes back in the fall and we do we do another lockdown, I think that's when we'll really start to see a permanence to all these things. And we can be much more sure about this. Uh, You know, it's interesting to watch the restaurants as they struggle, some successfully and some unsuccessfully, like we talked about. Um, But the patrons are ready to come back. That's what I'm seeing. So I'm not just watching the restaurant staff. I'm trying to watch the patrons. And people are desperate to get out and just, you know, whatever. But there's such a fear out there that you might be right, Tom. We might have to... You know redesign the airports again which i'd be fine for i i think our airport architects um making you know all these trains and everything uh i really prefer airports where i can get to any service i want within 100 yards you know and i fly to asia often and those airports you're walking two and a half miles just to get your bag uh and it's not that much better in the United States. And these guys just keep giving themselves awards and all these airports are awesome. And they don't have any senior citizens flying anymore. It's just too far of a walk. Uh, so that, that's something to consider. I think we can go back to the nice smaller airport, even if it's only dedicated to a single airline. Um, we worked with an airline a couple of years ago and we said, this is what you, you know, should maybe do. You're paying these exorbitant gate fees and all that kind of stuff. There's some property right off this runway over here. Go buy that, build your own warehouse, and now your customers have an experience of, uh, that's much, much easier than the main airport.
0: Yeah, um, a couple Because w- people don't
2: really care if there's a Gucci. They just want to get on their plane.
0: Yeah, a couple weeks ago I, I drove just drove through the Colorado Springs Airport. Um, boy, what a ghost town that was there was there's just nobody there no activity Um, and I don't know Has it been reduced down to just a half dozen flights a day or something like that it seems like um, yeah there's uh, all the airlines have just gone through radical cuts and and yeah it's it's hard to hard to imagine them surviving on the amount of traffic that they have right now well I
2: don't think they will and I think that but then, you know, we just don't know. There's just so much uncertainty of it. You know, I did a, uh, a 28 company survey. I think only two of them were less than 100 employees. And I was trying to get the pulse of, of both the digital community and the consumer electronics community. And it was so much fun to just talk to these people. They're all senior senior people at these companies. And it was really cool because the, they can't forecast a month, much less three months. And usually they're forecasting years out, you know? And this is something that's that's gonna, you know, that uncertainty. I mean, if we if, if there's a miracle cure next week, we go back to the roaring twenties, everything's gonna be fine, everybody's gonna go out. There's not gonna be any hesitation. Uh, I don't believe that'll happen, but you know, that's that that is what would happen because we're also desperate to get back to the way things were it's a great, great time for every company to say we need to innovate now. We need to concentrate on what our customers want. We need to go back to basics like, you know, Ryan Baker just says airports stink if you have to get on a train or if you have to wait four hours through security and, and, you know, I'm supposed to arrive two and a half hours early for a flight going a half an hour away. All that kind of stuff needed to change anyway. And so this might bring the customer up and front and center. The same is true for software companies. You know, we've seen a big shakeout in software companies during uh, the 19 because you just consider enterprise software or security software or content, uh, contact relationship management software. All of these things are being used in such a higher degree and their simplicity, people are dumping them right away if they don't work. And that was their mistake for not not doing a better job earlier, right? So uh, we've worked with four or five CRM companies in the past four or five years and uh, maybe six years, and it's funny to watch them. The ones that implemented all of the user-centered designs are flying off the shelf. I mean, people are, they've almost doubled their sales during the 19, whereas the other ones are, they get a lot of bites and then everybody wants their money back. You need to have a good experience across every product category today. Uh, And competition is only going to get more fierce, I
1: think. It's not a.
2: Tom, I know you listen to some AM radio in the Denver area. (laughs) Have you heard um, NetSuite? I mean, it's every other commercial uh, of NetSuite on the radio. And that's specifically because they know this is the time for enterprise software to really shine. Um, It's not a really great product. I've worked on a couple modules for them. But it's a it, they're trying to get that they're trying to move everybody to enterprise that's you know more than 100 employees, uh, so they're they're hitting that middle market um, a little bit more aggressively, because people need it at this point. And yeah. same thing happened with Google adding Hangouts to every appointment. The same thing happened at Microsoft pushing Teams like crazy. So we're not seeing this in a. Unfortunately, I think it's the big guys are going to have more cloud kind of take the. Take the brunt, you know. Chipotle's are gonna win over the over the smaller burrito shops.
0: Yeah, one of the the usability differences right now is that in the past people would come to the office and if they couldn't figure something out they'd ask their friend or somebody nearby. Um, now when you're working on your own, you're working solo. You just don't have that camaraderie. You don't have that, that buddy sitting next door that you can lean over and say, "How'd you do this one?" Um, it, it's not as not as convenient. Just not as easy to to do things. Um, and so uh, it's it's um, it's more uh, I don't know user centric, um, user user solo design, or something like that that uh, you just have to figure it out on your own and if you can't then you're you're going to toss it in the trash.
2: Yeah exactly the collaboration software today is is I mean we've made leaps and bounds during this crisis so uh, you know and I still would recommend some of the smaller companies that have spent more time on the the usability or UX of, of particular platforms than the larger companies that, that um, you know portend to have spent the time but they they really just want you to go to a weekend conference so you can learn how to use their software, which is uh, funny to me. Um, you know, oh, as a as a digital designer, you have miserably if you have to have a conference telling people how to use your software.
1: Right. <laughs> you okay. know
2: yeah. um, And that's a that's an Oracle and Salesforce tradition. Are those conferences? They're, they're, it's actually on their balance sheet as, as a good money maker for them. Um, so yeah, the the idea of Let's get better at at concentrating on the solopreneur, the person who's a solopreneur, even if they work in a large corporation. That's something we have to concentrate on right now. Um, And I think we're gonna see the big companies in the short term and in the long term, they're either gonna have to change their product to match that solopreneur, or they're gonna lose to the little guys who are gonna get more traction in a couple months.
0: Yeah, so just, uh, are you planning on going to CES in January?
2: No, I, uh, I, I don't I really don't enjoy the floor that much. So I go for meetings. Okay. And it looks like the and it, the meetings are going to be. Um, I don't know when the I don't I don't know if I'll have a bunch of meetings that I need to go uh, this coming year. Um, we will have at least one product on display at CES. I know that, uh, but I'm not sure. Uh, and that's for a, a larger company, so they don't need they don't need us there. Um, I don't know. I, are you planning on going? Uh,
0: it, it's a big question mark in my mind at this point. Uh, so, so I was just curious as to what your thinking was, um, and so
2: I, I think it'll be perfectly safe. I, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't have a safety issue around it.
0: Yeah. Um, well, it also affects so many other things too. It's how many vendors are going to be there. Is it still going to be the same type of experience? Um, and maybe people just want to go to test out the new boring machine tunnel underneath the convention center, and uh, see what that looks like. But uh, it, it'll be such a vastly different experience than it was in January this year.
2: But I think we, I think we got really lazy about conferences, right? So, um, I, you know, I was, I was doing a study of the Uber and Lyft drivers in Vegas, and I can't remember what CES it was. 2017 maybe when they were allowed into Vegas, and uh, maybe it was 2018. I can't remember. I think 2017. Yeah, and it was actually super interesting because, you know, Vegas just didn't think it needed Uber and Lyft, and those guys were they've become vital to getting around Vegas, especially with large shows. And so I think a large show that like that that has so many visitors and so many vendors, they're going to work really hard to sell all those booths again, let's say they sell half as many, it's gonna be much easier to walk around the floor. You know, Uh, it's gonna be, you're not gonna run into people constantly. I mean, you know, noontime at CES is just this mass of people and it's very difficult to get around. Um, And that's something that that wasn't that pleasant. You know, Uh, I think think we'll see more conversation-based booths. I don't think we're gonna have as many uh, showcases. Uh, because they don't need to get these big crowds in and out. So I think all the audio companies, uh, which have these big rooms and they showcase their products, uh, is gonna go more like the VR stuff did a couple of years ago with Samsung. And you're still in a big group of people, but you're separated by a little bit. Everybody's got the individual headset. Um, and that was a much better experience for people uh, by not just putting them in a room and having to sit through a presentation. So I think we'll see less of that. Um, and I think, you know, transportation, hotels, everything else are going to be are going to be cheaper. I I hope that um, I hope that they come up with some. I love the game craps, so I hope they come up with something for those dice. You know, they <laughs> put them in alcohol or something, and then throw them down my way or some belt cleaner. I don't know what they're going to have to do with that, but um, I hope craps doesn't go away. Plus, my some of my Chinese partners just love playing craps. I get stuck at those tables half the night.
1: Yeah. So, Brian, you said something earlier in the conversation that I really wanted to explore a little bit. You said the when you have a new medium, you're dealing with a new growth curve. And I'm really fascinated by this idea of of new media, new mediums where you can design things from the ground up to afford different ways of interacting with things or structure different kinds of cognition. So I'm, I'm just interested in how you know you're dealing with a new medium. How do you go about exploring its properties and its affordances? What's that process like? Do you have a taxonomy for categorizing different media? Uh,
2: well, no, we haven't built a, a, a generalized taxonomy, but you can think of a generalized taxonomy in your, in your head, right? Uh, a new medium is something that you've never built before, or something that nobody else has built for before. So we've seen several new mediums in the last decade. Uh, virtual reality is one, obviously, even though it's a thirty-year-old thing, it's now consumer-based. Uh, news on social media is a new thing, and that's something that's uh, that's really taken over uh, the news industry. Uh, we've seen. New mediums such as, you know, what will people, what are people interested in? So Instagram started with just photos, and you've got uh, everybody adding um, payment systems through apps and through mobile. We now have almost 30% of online shopping happening with a phone. So there are all these new mediums that we hadn't considered before on the same same platform, right? Most of this is mobile and, and laptop computers and iPads and so on so all of those things combined, you can kind of give a growth curve. I remember looking at the initial, um, the, the initial iPad, or, I mean, iPhone apps, and they were just hilarious to me on how rudimentary they were and how poor they were. Uh, and we learned very quickly in that ecosystem because people jumped into it so fast and there were so many designs, but people still do a lot of things wrong on mobile. Um, it's it's really difficult for people to uh, to design around mobile because they want to add all of, they want to put the whole kitchen sink in there, you know, and there's not room for the kitchen sink. Uh, there's something else that happened with mobile which was interesting, and I think Steve Jobs knew this before he launched the iPhone, which was you're stuck in one ecosystem, you are stuck in that ecosystem, and you can't get out. So it's one app at a time, right? You can't have. It's not like a desktop where you have everything available and you can see it. Uh, you know, if you're if you're talking to somebody on a video chat and I, and, and I want to use Excel right now and we can talk about a spreadsheet, I can share the spreadsheet with you, or we can both look at it together on our own individual uh, computers. There's none of that uh, in the app universe. It is all one thing at a time, and that was the biggest take, the biggest uh, pain point, I think, for users. And I think Steve Jobs knew that people would get over it very, very quickly. Um, even advanced app developers today don't even don't even consider the concept of what it means to exit an app, and go look at something else. Um, and that's very interesting to me. So I think that, uh, especially with Tencent and all their all the apps in China and their payment apps. They, they went the opposite direction. Instead of making something separate, they put it and incorporated it into the app. Um, and that was something that, you know, the West hadn't quite figured out at that point. So uh, we've all got to figure it out now. So you can always see those payment options within individual apps. And, but that was something China gave us, and it was a discovery that changed the way we use apps. So I think that's positive. But that was just a couple of years ago. So. You can see these things kind of evolve as they go down the road. And obviously, when you end up with a template for anything in digital, um, well, actually, it's true for consumer electronics as well and for automotive. People do get comfortable with one way. So even though it's a worse way or it isn't as easy for them, they're just comfortable with it. So that was my, my example with you, Trem, was that you were uh, hesitant about WebEx just because you hadn't been on it. That's all despite it being about the
1: same. Thing. Yeah, absolutely. So to what extent do you keep up with the work being done in human factors and usability design and, and these sorts of things? Is, is there anything that makes you really excited? So you've mentioned AR and VR. I, I occasionally go to MIT's Fluid Interfaces Lab webpage and poke around there and see some of the interesting stuff they're doing. Deb Roy's got some really amazing stuff on making information ubiquitous and uh, putting computing everywhere so you can just... You type on a keyboard that's projected on a table or take a picture by holding your hands a certain way So I'm really fascinated by what that opens up and what it makes possible. So do you have any thoughts on that?
2: I'm not that interested in uh, the fluid UI I, I'm, You know, I've seen it uh, come and go for the last decade or so uh, and so that's it, It's a great presentation for MIT uh, And you know their, their lab is is at the cutting edge of a lot of stuff? Um, I think that voice is probably the next really big thing we're learning about voice really dramatically right now, uh, and I think that's kind of the next the next frontier, and it, it fits into a you know a saying that we use is, that great designers talk about whether I'm building a toaster or whether I'm building and I have built a toaster which is funny uh, or a television set or a mobile phone or uh, uh, you know a website or an app the less, so the best interface is no interface. That's the idea, right? The, the yes. best interface is no interface. And I think that's what voice is starting to give us. And we're seeing AI now predict um, what we want to do next. Uh, I remember a great talk that, that your co-host over there gave, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, Tom, when the when the iPad was being used for, and you, you were talking about how children were gonna learn on the iPad, when the iPad notices that the child is getting bored, they stop the learning and go to a game. Or they suggest the kid goes and runs outside for 10 minutes and then come back in and finish their lesson. And yeah. that's happening every day. We don't realize it. It's happening on our phones every day to every one of us.
1: Well, my, um, my daughter, we, we bought her a, a special tablet from Amazon that does exactly this thing. So it's it's pretty much just educational games, limited inter, uh, access to YouTube, and the, these little educational Modules and she goes through these, and it is amazing what they've designed now. But she, she comes to us speaking complete sentences that we've never heard before, she's not three yet. And she interacts with it in a way that's incredibly intuitive. I was watching her the other day for about 15 minutes, and she's just scrolling through it, finding exactly what she wants, fast forwarding to where she wants it to be. She, she's, she's not three yet, and, and she is just immersed in this world and interacting with these things in a way that is just so much more fluent than it would have been for me or for you or for Thomas.
2: Yeah,
0: so Brian, have you thought of doing some testing on two-year-olds? <laughs>
2: I've done a lot of testing on, um, so kids and senior citizens are my favorite two markets, uh, because the kids don't understand they're being watched the same way an adult does, or even a teenager does, uh, and and senior citizens are just very gruff. They just don't hold back at all. They're like, "This is stupid. Why are we doing it this way?" You know, <laughs> um, and kids will show you that as well uh, in their in their behavior. So, Trent, when you were watching your daughter basically what I do when I'm watching uh, uh, it doesn't need to be a child but you know we've done several toys uh, for for larger companies that have sold really well around the world and when we're watching children I literally take a pen and pad and just like you did with your daughter all I'm adding there is me taking curious notes on where her hands are when she's touching the tablet it's a fire tablet right?
1: I believe so yes.
2: um, Yeah And, and then what the what the characters are on the screen how her face is reacting to the screen all of that kind of stuff and if you take those notes really copiously you can make that that piece of software even better and that's the same thing we do for any you know like we i described at the beginning of this call where we we take a lot of time to go and study the physical behaviors and people don't get this sometimes even good designers uh especially designers that have a one-off or a two-off, like they did really well on one or two products, and and then the next several fail. I'd like to build, or I I'd like, I'd like to design things that never fail. And the, the only way to do that is to make sure your customer loves it before you launch it, right? So if if I take a, a contract with a larger company, I put a, in a whole month there when they finish their prototype, and that's where I... That's where I spend some time, and then that's and then they need another month to tweak it after that, especially for things like kitchen appliances or headphones or AV equipment. That stuff needs to be tested really exhaustively, and the tests are a lot less expensive than launching a product. Oh no um, kidding!
1: Yeah, uh,
2: which Fire actually did. So Fire does a great job. The Fire tab by Amazon does a great job with education with toddlers and so forth, but. They were really trying to take on the iPad, and they just didn't put the power in there and the color. And those are the two things that everybody really wanted, and they didn't realize that. They spent, you know, tens, hundred million dollars, and it didn't take. right? Um, somebody who had studied people as extensively as Steve Jobs would have known it wouldn't take uh, before he launched. And so that's that's kind of the mistakes that happen. Um, but in my world, where we design things that work and that. That do well in the marketplace we study the human animal first we are prototyping early we're not following a lean startup methodology we're not doing sprints to look cool in front of our clients we're literally out in the field with a pen and a pad studying how people behave around a product or an experience
1: that's remarkable so i think we're coming up on the end here do you have any parting thoughts for us (laughs)
2: parting <laughs> thoughts. I hope that everybody understands that uh, or gets that, that I do have some passion around great design and I'm hoping that this this whole thing leads to better design across the board. I think we're going to face a great deal of competition moving forward in every facet of, of, of our lives and every product. I think that that you know, sheet designer that we were talking about earlier, I think that, that he needs to spend a little bit more time studying people as they sleep. Because he's going to have a lot more competition coming up here. So that—that's what I would like to get across is that the best designs in the world, almost everything that you love, that you treasure in your toolbox or you treasure in your kitchen or you treasure in your pocket, all of those things were, stud, were, were built by studying the human animal first, not some prototype that got done in a in a you know an accelerator somewhere, and we hope for the best. These things are more likely. Really, a centered focus on on the unique, and so I hope that happens more often.
0: So, um, so Brad,
2: so yeah, go ahead, Tom.
0: Yeah, if if somebody wants to get a hold of you, what's what's a good website to point them to?
2: So we're at rebelconsultants.com, uh, and you can just type into Google Rebel Boulder or Rebel San Francisco, and you'll find us. Um, you know, the website is fairly static. Uh, because we get most of our work um, word of mouth, it's word of mouth, I guess. But I really, um, you know, some of this philosophy that I've talked about is there. And my LinkedIn as well uh, has some of these ideas in it too. And I I would suggest that if this comes out and we're still in a recovery mode from the 19, that now is the time to innovate. Got an extra 45 bucks in your pocket, give me a call. It doesn't matter how much money you have or don't have. Now is the time to innovate. I did a really cool program, actually. I put on the website. I don't get our website doesn't get that many visitors, but I put on the website. I'll talk to anybody uh, from any industry on product design during COVID, and it was really fun. I talked to two or three people a week uh, for two months, and I didn't know them, and they just, you know, I, they just sent me. Uh, an email to a certain email address that we have posted on the on the front page there and it was super fun to work with all those people and just say here's what i here here's my take and it always ends up to study the human being you know um a lot of ux designers in both physical products automotive and hardware are doing things by surveys and focus groups and those are all ancient methods those those do not you know the reason samsung and apple and lg and some of these other really large companies that we love do well is because they're out in the field. And when you get in the field, you end up with a better product.
0: Well, thank, thank you, Brian, for joining us. And uh, it's been a great discussion here. Um, well, until until we meet next time, uh, I wish you the best in surviving the 19th. <laughs> thank
2: you. Thank you, sir, for using that. Trent and Tom, thank you very much for the time. I appreciate it. It's a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, absolutely.